You know, when when we last spoke with the man that I call the godfather of price and quality transparency, it was eight years ago, almost to the date of this recording. What's changed? What hasn't? And what's being done? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. This is the Shift Shapers podcast, connecting benefits advisors with thought leaders and entrepreneurs who are shaping the shifts in the industry. And now, here's your host, David Saltzman. And I want to welcome back from the Wayback Machine, Dr. Keith Smith. He is co-founder of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma and some other stuff that he does to occupy his time that we'll talk about as we go along. Keith, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. Give us a little bit about your story and how you ended up in, at, at founding the co-founding the Oklahoma Surgery Center. Well, in uh, 1990, uh, I started my private practice in anesthesia and I very shortly realized um, that the hospitals were not my friend. Uh, they were not the patient's friend. Uh, they were not the surgeon's friends, um, the surgeons that I worked with. Um, and increasingly, our pay uh, by the government and the uh, Blue Cross United Cigna Aetna were getting squeezed. And the hospitals were making a bundle. I mean, amounts they'd never made before. All the while, uh, they perfected their poor-mouthing propaganda sort of strategy. So, and you still hear it today. You know, the hospitals are all going broke, and we have to uh, pony up money for them and overpay them and uh, bail them out. And that that all started really back in the early '90s. Um, at the same time that physician pay was being squeezed and the hospitals were getting rich, it became apparent that the uh, patients uh, were being increasingly uh, terrorized, uh, sent to collections, uh, liens placed on uh, their property. And, you know, I was raised, uh, I was raised in a home that thought the golden rule uh, meant something. And and I'm a big fan of mutually beneficial exchange. I'm not a fan of coerced uh, behavior. Uh, I'm not a fan of uh, mandates of any kind. Uh, I think individuals are naturally cooperative. Uh, and that really is not what I signed up for uh, when I became a physician. I wanted to help people uh, and enter into exchanges that I had hoped would be mutually beneficial. So Another anesthesiologist and I had had enough. Uh, 1997, we walked away uh, from very successful anesthesia practices, but we just couldn't do it anymore. Uh, we opened our own facility uh, with an aim toward not only being a medical, but also a financial advocate uh, for patients. And you know what? We were right. Uh, we were we were hoping that we could charge a fraction of what hospitals charged uh, for the same service, uh, I would argue better service, um, and patients could pay a whole lot less money and get a whole lot better care. You know, and here we are in 2023, the surgery center has been open 26 years. Um, we have lots of people out there banging the drums for us, John Stossel, Ron Paul, Steve Forbes. Um, it really was a uh, a radical move. Uh, looking back, it was much more radical than we had any idea at the time. Um, it was, according to some people that I know, an industry-changing move, and it even has had some um, some policy uh, ramifications. I've 
Larry Van Horn, my friend, the economist from Vanderbilt, told me that the Trump executive order mandating price transparency was directly derived from what we had done in 2009 when I posted all of our prices online. So you know, we opened this surgery center. It's a very free market-minded and did well. Um, all of the attacks we sustained by uh, the cronies and the legislators backfired until about 2006 uh, when they stacked uh, deductibles. So patients had no uh, insurance benefit out of network until they had met their in-network benefit. And that almost closed us because up to that point, the price patients paid out at an in-network hospital was more just meeting their deductible than our entire price. And so that was a source of a lot of our business, and that all went away. So in 2009, I just posted all of the prices online, and Canadians showed up. You know, that was the first thing that happened. And then all these uninsured folks, and then uh, beneficiaries of self-funded insurance plans and the cost-sharing ministries, and that's the that's the source of our business now. We don't we don't deal with any insurance plans. We don't accept money from the government. We never have. We've never taken a dime of money uh, from government since we opened. So it's been a wild success. It's inspired many many others. Um, and I, frankly, every day I go to work, I feel vindicated with a smile on my face and and think about how much money people actually keep in their pockets now. Um, receiving care that they otherwise could not have afforded because of what what we did really back in uh, 1997 when we started. Well, and and you have had probably a thousand arrowectomies because the pioneers are always the ones with the arrows in them. <laughs> but I, I remember when you when you posted prices, you caught holy hell from almost everybody, didn't you? Yeah, and one of my favorite quotes is a Gandhi quote where he says, you know, first. They ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And that's a bit exactly our response, uh, our experience. I mean, um, you know, at first they kind of ignored us and laughed at us, and we were the objects of scorn and contempt and ridicule. Um, then they called us cherry pickers. You know, all we were doing is picking the low hanging fruit, and what about the poor? And then it became clear it was the poor who actually were coming to our shores. You know, it was these expensive hospitals that were driving poor people away. And then we increasingly were perceived more as an underdog uh, than anything. So, yeah, we, we've had a lot of attacks. I, I, I remember those things sort of nostalgically. But the more I think about all of the battles that we entered, even the ones that we won, it's exhausting. I almost, I can almost feel how stressed and exhausted I was at the time. Um, every one of those attacks came up, and it, it, it's almost too overwhelming to relive <laughs> all of them. But you're right, uh, we um, we survived, uh, but there there were no shortage of attempts to, to slay what we had in mind. Oh, no, I, I remember it well. So um, it's been eight years since we last spoke. Um, are we there yet? Uh, define there. Well, are, are we where you think the end point of this is, or are we just getting started? 
Oh, no, we're just getting started. We are at a tipping point. Um, and I reminded the members of the Free Market Medical Association at our last meeting just a month ago, we are a rebellion. We are not a revolution. I do not want to take the place of the goons and the cronies and take over what they do. We, we are a rebellion. We're an alternative. But that alternative is very creepy uh, for the status quo because it's a daily reminder that cheaper and better is the alternative. Uh, throwing the keys to the government and letting them take it all over is an alternative some would suggest, but that's a disaster where you overpay um, and and the care is under-delivered. So I would say we are at a tipping point. Um, I think that this economy uh, and what the government has done to the money and um, you know just printing money like crazy, you know we're seeing um, price inflation. Um, and so the more expensive things get, the less margin there is for things that seem or even are suspected to be overpriced. So that is played uh, in our hand. And and we also have, you know, some big gorillas out there uh, like the cost sharing ministries and some big self-funded companies that that are now filling the squeeze. You know, up to this point, for many self-funded companies, medical services has been a rounding error. They didn't really care what it costs, but they do now. Um, so, yeah, I think a combination of things as as what we've done, uh, what it means, receives more notoriety as the economy gets squeezed. Um, yeah, more and more people are seeking an alternative. Um, and and I think we really are, we are really near a tipping point. I don't think we're anywhere near where this will end up. You know, it, it, it's interesting. The phrase that we use frequently is uh, on the podcast is that, and I think it was my friend Craig Lack who um, originally coined it, but we've created an entire class of people who are functionally uninsured. And I I think there, there are a number of folks, especially as we've driven the market into self-funded plans because there's been really nowhere else to go. Folks are starting, employers and plan sponsors are starting to actually look at these costs, as you pointed out, and their their thought is there's got to be a better way. I have had more conversations in the last two months about different kinds of self-pay arrangements than I've had in the 40 years I've been in the business. Are, are you hearing that from other quarters as well? Yes. Yes, it's coming. And really, one of the most exciting things that's happened is in a I think what can only be described as a real jujitsu move, self-funded employers, rather than increasing barriers to employees' care through deductibles and co-pays, have made deductibles and co-pays zero. And, and it, it seems too good to be true. But they can make it zero because of the alternative movement that we've started. So if there's reasonably priced, high-quality care to be purchased, then that is a very safe and appealing move uh, for an employer. And for those employers who embrace that idea, they have such a competitive advantage in the labor market. My gosh, some people don't even care what they're paid. Uh, when they take a job, all they care about are the benefits. What do you mean there's no deductible or copay? What do you mean nothing is deducted from my paycheck uh, for some god-awful health plan um, you know, that, 
exposes me to a deductible that I cannot afford. So, yes, you're you're right. This there are many many uh, alternatives that are being offered, um, and and what's really exciting is is this move to really secede uh, from from the other system and embrace this alternative. And it, it's very creepy for uh, the status quo and the other side. I've I've actually um, am conversational and have contact with some people who are on the other side um, who have very discreetly told me they know this is coming. Uh, they just don't want it to come any sooner than it has to. Uh, but when the market sends that signal, when the buyer declares their sovereignty and sends a hard signal into the marketplace, then even the status quo will bow down. They will, as I tell people, they'll have to kiss the free market's ring. They will have to provide service in a transparently priced, high-quality way, or they'll lose that business. And some of these buyers are so large that uh, the sellers can't, can't afford to do that. Well, and, and, you know, you couple that with some of the new regulations that have come out and the CAA um, notifications in in, uh, in ERISA where plans have got to act in the best interest of their members, which they should have been doing all along. Right. But the plan signatories can be held personally liable if they don't. All of a sudden now, I think we've got people's attention. I think that's right. And, uh you know, that's really the that's the dirty phrase that, David, you're not supposed to utter is fiduciary responsibility. Um, an ERISA lawyer I know tells me that the lawsuits that are filed on behalf of self-funded employees who've, who've really seen the plan administrators breach that responsibility, those lawsuits will dwarf uh, big tobacco. So the, these are big numbers. I mean, what is this, a $4 trillion industry, something like that? So uh, these lawsuits will be insane. And I think that um, I think employers are beginning to really grasp the idea that they actually do have the fiduciary responsibility ERISA requires them to assume. Well, and what I'm hearing from some of my folks who are on the regulatory side is that there are planned documents that are now being written that require members to use these facilities where transparent costs are disclosed up front, where quality information is disclosed up front. So let's talk a little bit about quality because we've spoken a lot about dollars and cents, but if the quality is crappy, it doesn't matter what the price is. How do you put the quality metrics out there and assure folks that they're not only getting a less expensive out, you know, uh, cost for their procedure, but they're getting outcomes that in many cases are superlative. Well, my my friend and co-founder of Free Market Medical Association, Jay Kempton, travels all over the place, and he'll ask, um, you know, somebody at a hospital, "Will you give me pricing for um, knee replacements?" Yeah, yeah. And Jay follows up, "Will you stand behind it?" Wait, what do you mean? I mean, if you mess up. Will you stand behind it? Oh, no, we don't know about that. Well, he's got his quality answer right there. Back up. Will you give me a price for total knee replacements? No, we don't know what that's going to cost until the procedure's finished. Well, he's got his answer there. If 
if I can't tell you the price of something up front, that means there is a lot of uncertainty involved. That means that our outcomes are very uncertain, and that means you probably should look elsewhere. So I would argue the strongest indication of does somebody know what they're doing? Is this a quality experience? Is number one, will they tell you how much it is up front? Because if they will, if they'll say a gallbladder removal is $6,836, like I will, that means that's a very predictable experience for you and it's going to go well. Um, if it's $10,000, that means that there's a lot of fudge built in there uh, to cover things when they don't go well. The other indication is, and will you stand behind it? So there are a lot of ways to measure quality. I recommend people read uh, Marty McCary's book, Unaccountable. Marty's a scientist. He kind of threw his hands up about quality metrics and said, basically, do a survey of the staff who work at that facility and ask them, would you have Dr. X do your gallbladder removal in this facility? And... Um, he he makes the point that, you know, Cleveland Clinic has five stars. Well, they have five stars because that's a great place to have cardiac surgery. But it's a terrible place to have your hip replaced. And so, what you know, what does it mean for the hip replacement patient who's looking at a five-star hospital? So uh, I recommend people read Marty McCary's book, Unaccountable. Uh, there's nothing in that book uh, with which I would disagree when it comes to quality metrics, that the difficulty in uh, creating them, and even the worst difficulty in interpreting them. How do you overcome that? I think you overcome it when people really wrap their minds around the idea of um, price transparency. So if, if someone will say, this is how much this is, that means they know what they're doing. There are very simple questions like, how many of these have you done? How many infections, how many revisions um, have you had? How many have you had to redo? Um, that sort of thing. You know, what are your qualifications? You know, where did you train? Are you board certified? Of course, board certification doesn't mean anything unless you don't have it. Uh, that's, it just doesn't mean anything. So there are some simple questions. You know, how many have you done? How many have you had to redo? You know, what is your infection rate? And that's why on my website at Surgery Center of Oklahoma, we actually publish our infection rates. Uh, we do it also because we're darn proud of it. Um, but any physician, any surgeon that I work with, and there's 137 on staff now, David, any one of them will tell you how many of these, they, how many of these have I done and how many have I redone. And any sort of questions beyond that on quality are just not very fruitful. Um, all of the Medicare data is so skewed. And remember, a lot of this is self-reported. So it's biased and flawed. Um, and there's one more thing people should know. A, a doctor, a surgeon who knows that they are being profiled, they will act differently. So if the results of this open heart surgery, if they're bad, then I know that's financially bad for me. That's bad for my practice if this case doesn't go well. Over time, everyone being human, the sickest patients will 
find their way to the back of the line. The people who represent the highest risk of a complicated outcome will have more and more difficulty securing care because surgeons who are financially profiled and punished for bad results will be more unlikely to take those people on. So there are there are even access to care consequences for even walking down this quality measurement path. So there's a lot of things, a lot of objections to it and a lot of things to consider. It's complicated. Well, you know, there, there's a long way to go. And, and, but as you said, we're, we're getting there and maybe we're about to turn the corner. I sure hope we are. I, I will pledge to the audience that we will have you back way sooner than eight years. I couldn't believe it when I, <laughs> I looked up how long it would have been yeah, and, me too. and let, let you keep giving us reports on kind of where we're going and how we're proceeding. But at least we're moving in the right direction, and that's a good thing. Dr. Keith Smith, co-founder of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Keith, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks for having me, David. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shapers, LLC. The content and images of this podcast may not be used without our express written permission. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.